Hey, uh, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I'm thankful for in life is children. If you're thankful for children, just let me hear it for a minute. The Bible says children are a blessing from the Lord, and, and we found that in our own home. We prayed six years before we were able to have our firstborn, Jaden. That's why we named him God, Jaden. It means God has heard. And then along came Evan and Luke. We're so thankful for them. I'm thankful for the noise of children in our church. When Bill Vogel came here a couple weeks ago, one of the things he told me was that many churches are going all silver. And I love silver. I'm quickly joining that club. <laughs> but I'm also so thankful to, to hear the noise of, of children at our church. I, I love children because they often see things in a different light, a light that catches us off guards maybe. I, th I think of a story of a pastor one time that was given a children's sermon about heaven and teaching the kids that they want to go there and and at the end of the sermon in front of the church he's got all the kids up here he asked the kids so let's review what do you have to be to get to heaven one little boy raised his hand and said dead <laughs> I, I love that about kids you, you sometimes don't know what, what they're going to say I think about the little little boy that that went to the doctor and the doctor's trying to connect with him and and he gets a little ear inspector in the ear and uh, he says you think I'll find Big Bird in there and the little boy didn't say anything and he starts looking down the boy's throat and nose and and he says you think I'll find Cookie Monster in there the little boy didn't say anything and then he puts the stethoscope on the little boy's chest and and he says you think I'll find Barney the dinosaur in there and little boy speaks up and says no Jesus lives in my heart Barney the dinosaur is on my underwear <laughs> I love kids and, and we're blessed to have them as part of our lives today's topic as you can see up there is Jesus and the little ones if you ever wonder about how Jesus feels about what he calls the little ones we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at it in three regards. The first one, we're going to see Jesus as teacher. Best teachers use object lessons, right? And I, I already tried to invite two kids up here. They both said, no, I don't know if there's any young boys that want to come up here for just a minute. I won't ask you to say anything. My first two said no, including one of my own. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Jesus, in... in our chapter calls up a, a young boy and he's going to give us a lesson. He's going to give his disciples a lesson. The lesson is this, humble yourself like this little one. If you, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 18, verse 18. Because at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What's going on here? These guys are... According to Mark 9, they, they're arguing along the way about which one of us is the greatest. And it might have been sparked because Peter, James, and John were three of them that recently got to go up that mountain alone with Jesus, maybe sparked a little jealousy. How come I didn't get to go? And then last week we saw Jesus paid Peter's taxes 
right? Which, which one of us ranks the highest? These are the kind of things grown-ups argue about sometimes, right? Luke 9 says that Jesus knew their thoughts. I mean, think about walking around with Jesus. That's like worse than a mom with eyes in the back of her head. He, he knew what they were thinking about, what they were talking about, and that's exactly why, in verse 2, he called to him a child. It says, he put that child in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that word. They were arguing about position. Jesus takes it all the way to admission. Unless you become humble like a child, you're not even getting in. Verse 4, he breaks it down more. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this whole object lesson, it probably doesn't shock us here. It, it would have shocked the disciples. This child greatness, because while children were loved by the Jews, they were pretty low on the totem pole of rank and status. They didn't get any rights of their own until they became adults. And now he's saying, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like a child? They would have said like, Willis, I'm aging myself a little bit. What, what you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> he's talking about humility. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child, and I think of what humility is the opposite of. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of self-sufficiency. I got this on my own, right? Now think about it in context of what just happened. Jesus called the boy, and the boy came, right? Now, how many of you think the, the boy standing there in front of Jesus and the crowd starting to wonder himself, hey, I wonder now that Jesus called me up here if he thinks I'm better than James and John over there. Like, maybe not them, but maybe Nathaniel. We don't know much about him. How many of you think that the little boy's even, even thinking about that? How many of you think he was just blown away to be called by Rabbi Jesus? and stand there in his presence. I imagine he was more that way. Probably couldn't wait to go tell his friends that weren't there. He was called and he came in simple, uncomplicated trust to Jesus. Now think about that. The apostles had been like that, right? Some of them left behind fishing nets, a, a lucrative fishing business. One of them left behind a lucrative tax booth in childlike faith, right? At that point, just to follow Jesus was enough. But somewhere along the way, what happened? That pride snuck in. And they had to get beyond the, the simple wonder of just following Jesus. They started to worry about where do I fit in this whole thing? Am I better than him? Right? When I think of simple trust, some of you relate to this. I think of going to the pool with our kids when they were toddlers, at that age where they're still a little afraid of the water. Any of you remember that? 
What do you usually do as mom and dad? What, what did Carolyn and I do? We, we would hop in the water, right? Reach our arms up and say, jump. I'll catch you. And even though sometimes it took a few more words of encouragement, all three of our boys jumped. Why? They, they took our word for it, right? They trusted mom. They trusted dad. Now, I think about Turtle back there. We hung out this week. Wave your hand for a second, Turtle. He didn't know he's going to be in the message today. If, if it was Turtle on the edge of the pool and I'm in the water and I say, hey, Turtle, jump and I'll catch you. He might doubt me, right? He might say, well, is Scott really going to catch me or is he playing a joke on me? He might even wonder, even if Scott did try to catch me, is he going to be able to catch me or are we both going under, right? Those are warranted doubts. It would have warranted unbelief in me in that situation. That makes sense. But that kind of unbelief makes no sense at all when it comes to the invitations of our almighty Savior. You see, coming to Christ to embrace him as your Savior and Lord, it requires us to be humble. And it requires us to trust him. I think about that and I think about John chapter 6. You remember in a context where he was saying, he's the bread of life, whoever eats of him will never hunger again. And the Jews there are wondering, they ask him point blank in John 6, 28, what are the works we must do? Right? And you remember his answer in John 6, 29, the work of the Father is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in Jesus, right? So simple. What does childlike faith do with that? Childlike faith hears that and says, hey, I have sins that need forgiven. I want eternal life. I'm putting my trust in Jesus. But what happens as we grow up sometimes? We overcomplicate things, don't we? Believe in the one he has sent. That, that's way too simple. We start elevating our own human reason above God's revelation. When I think about Jesus as the bread of life, I can't help but think of Isaiah 55, verse 1. There, the prophet writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money... Come buy and eat. Did you catch that? He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, what does adult human reason sometimes do with that? I say, wait a second. Bread's never free. How can I buy something with no money? Well, what kind of offer is this? But it's not only human reason. Sometimes that pride creeps into our lives as adults as well. Human pride, what's that say? I've got this on my own. I don't need help. And where does that leave us? Isaiah 55, 2, he asks a question. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? What's he saying 
Saying that leaves us unsatisfied when we don't take him at his word, take his offer. We keep pursuing our own path, keep trying to, to earn it, but it's not satisfying. But hey, at least I've got my precious pride, right? Right? I think about it like this. If you like it short and sweet, as long as you think you got it, you won't know you need it, so you won't come and get it. Does that make sense? You got to understand your need for Jesus Christ, the Savior. When you come to him in faith, what happens? Isaiah goes on. He says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Listen, Jesus died for your sins and mine. And he rose again. I want to ask you the most important question you'll ever hear. Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord in simple, childlike faith? If not, perhaps this morning could be your moment. You find yourself in that unsatisfied place. I've tried this. I've tried that. Come to Jesus. He'll satisfy. If you have, I want to ask you a question. Are you still humbly content with being one of his followers? You still have the wonder of how amazing that is. Or have... Some of us allowed that pride to creep into where we're now, just like those disciples, kind of jockeying for position with other believers in the church. Jockeying for position at work, jockeying for position wherever I go. Let's get back to contentment with being one of his followers and the wonder of that. Verse five, he goes on, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's how strongly he feels about these little ones. You, you receive them. He said, I'll credit it to your account as though you received me. He's identifying himself with the little ones. And when I think about receiving or welcoming, you know what I think about? I think about how important hospitality was and is in, in Jewish culture. A very high calling, especially at this time. There, there wasn't a holiday inn on every corner. There weren't restaurants. Like we're getting another chicken place in PV. If you want chicken, somebody just said you should call PV the chicken strip, right? We're getting raising canes. We have, you want food, there's a million options, right? It wasn't like that back in the day. Not to mention the roads were dangerous. There were bandits at night. So travelers depended on the hospitality, on being received, welcomed by generous people in their homes. The Jewish Talmud even says that welcoming guests is greater than welcoming the divine presence, the Shekinah. Now that goes further than I would, but it does certainly show you how important it was to show hospitality to others to one who needs to be received. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And that receiving, that hospitality involved two sacred responsibilities. You know what they were? Provision and protection. Now I wanna talk about the protection as we move.
to Jesus in his second role. Jesus as protector. I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying here. Do not harm the little ones. The picture says it all. There's one place you never want to be, right? Out in the woods when you're hiking, between a mama bear and her cubs. That's how I envision Jesus in the verses we're just about to read toward those who would harm the little ones. Look at verse six. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, before I go on, I want to point out that many good teachers believe, as he talks about little ones here, it's not only children. It includes the children, but he says, little ones who believe in me. He's now expanding it to talk about all who follow Jesus. Maybe keep in mind, especially those who are newer in their walk or, or less mature than you are in your walk. All, all the above. But what's he say? It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If you ever thought Jesus was only meek and mild, this passage might shock you. You might begin to understand now why I see him as a mama bear when he looks at the little ones. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. I say, what's a millstone? Well, it's something used to grind corn or grain. And, and there was a little version, like the Black and Decker version that the ladies had at home in, in Israel. You could use, use it like this. That's not the word that's used here. This is the large 1,000-pound version, a stone that was sometimes as tall as a man and could only be pulled by a donkey in a circle as it ground the corn. Now, do you understand how strong Jesus' language is here? It would be better for someone to have a 1,000-pound stone roped around his neck and drowned in the ocean than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, I think about that, and I think about some of the lies being foisted on children in America in 2023. First, I think of some of the newsworthy lies. Lies like, you, you can change your gender. You know what I hear? I hear the voice of Satan in Genesis 3. Did God really say? What does Genesis 1.27 say? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is a choice of the creator. You think of the sadness and desperation and confusion this lie has caused to young ones. What about us? You, you can change the definition of healthy Sexual relationships, same-sex relationships are fine. It's okay if that's how you feel. And again, I hear the, did God really say? What does he say in Romans 1, 26 in the New Testament? He 
It says there, women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And I think about lies like that and I think of two groups. There are those ensnared and deceived by the lies. Then there are the people Jesus is warning here the people, the, the organizations, the funders, the groups, even some churches pushing this into the mind of our children. That's another group. You find yourself in that group, you're between a mama bear and her cubs. He goes on, verse seven, woe to the world for temptations to sin for it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let me ask you a question. You think Jesus is talking about literal mutilation here? I don't because guess what? You can take your eyes off, cut your hands off. You still got a heart here that needs dealt with. But what he's saying is that anything in here that causes you to sin and therefore causes you to cause others to sin, get rid of it. Because if you do not repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you will get the justice that's coming to you in eternity. You will not experience the meek and mild Jesus. You will experience his wrath. Paul talks about that wrath in 2 Thessalonians 1.6. At his second coming, says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see the mama bear there repaying the afflictors and bringing relief to those afflicted? About Revelation 21.8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen, I plead with you, if, if you heard me talking about those foisting these lies on others, and you say, that's me, I've been doing that, and you have not come to Jesus, you may be here this morning for such a time as this. It's not too late for you. Jesus' offer of salvation is for you. Will you turn this morning and believe? You know what he says? Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. That forgiveness is available to all who will turn to him. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
I think about those newsworthy lies, but I also think about a more subtle kind of lies with the little ones that sometimes maybe can even sneak their way into Christian homes with Christian parents. Perhaps some of us need to be more aware of these. We, we know all about the first ones, but what about these? What if we as Christian parents accidentally push the children under our care to find ultimate significance in the same things the world does? Where's the world look for significance? Brains, beauty, brawn, skills to pay the bills, right? None of those are bad things. But guess what? If we, if we leave out, even by omission, the centrality of Jesus Christ, who says, seek first the kingdom of heaven, we've done our children a great disservice. They're to find their significance in Jesus and his kingdom. What about this one? Our family goes to church. We, we go to Christian school or we homeschool with Christian curriculum and we accidentally lead the children to believe that's enough because we don't emphasize to the children their individual need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you can do all the above without a relationship with Jesus if you're not careful. Jesus closes this section with a warning that seems kind of like a threat to me. Verse 10, he says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven there are angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. And if you forgive me to go off on a little tangent here, I, I see it kind of like a heavenly mafia. <laughs> right? Like, hear Jesus, like, Forgive me. <laughs> I'm just hearing though, like, I wouldn't mess with the little ones. The angels are watching and they got a direct connection to my father. There's some humor in that, but there's also some grave seriousness, a warning. And I wanna tell you this, church, he wants us to share his protective heart toward the little ones, whether it's children literally or those younger in the faith you see him being led astray misled listen to what proverbs says proverbs 24 11 says rescue those who are being taken away to death hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter if you say behold we did not know this does not he who weighs the heart perceive it does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it and will he not repay man according to his work. You see him calling us to take on the mama bear along with him and protect the little ones. Let me ask you a question or two here. Is there anywhere you're causing a little one in your life to stumble? This would be a great morning to lay it down, confess it and turn a new corner with the grace of God. We all need his grace. Second thing, am I doing all I can to protect the young ones in my sphere of influence? Is there anything more that he would call me to in my home, in my church, in my community? Final picture of Jesus. Jesus as shepherd. I love this picture. 
you've probably seen it going around online. One of my favorite pictures of Jesus as shepherd. You see that little lost lamb there, and you see the shepherd running. And I want to sum this point up as hurry after the little ones. Hurry after them. Bring them to Christ, or if they've come to Christ and they've wandered, go out to bring them back. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? You see the individual love of the shepherd there? 99 safe, but one missing, I'm going. And don't think he left the other 99 uncared for. Often in this culture, it was a communal shepherd group. The whole village would, would share the responsibility. So there's probably two or three shepherds in the story still back with the sheep. He cares for the 99 too, but, but the shepherd's going after the one to find it before it dies. Verse 13, if he finds it truly to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. You see his joy in going out and finding one and bringing them home? You got any children you're praying for? Any little ones you're praying for? That's the heart of the Father. He, he rejoices when they come home. Verse 14, so it is, here's his point. It is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think about that shepherd going out. I think about the heart of Jesus as a shepherd and I think about Isaiah 40, verse 11. I want you to hear how personal this is. As he tends his flock like a shepherd, he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Just think on that for a minute, that little lamb, lost and astray, now picked up by the shepherd, not just carried, but carried close to his heart, where he can hear the, the shepherd's comforting heartbeat. It goes on to say, he gently leads those that have young. And I believe he calls you and I with him to hurry after the little ones. Think of things in the Old Testament like Proverbs 22.6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. <laughs> Think about Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you say, I want to be a part of that. Break it down. I'm going to give you three ways we can all be a part of that. And this is for all of us. Maybe you've been doing that. Maybe you haven't. But you say, today I want to start. Listen, God you every morning. It's not too late to start. Number one, pray for, pray for the little ones in your life. I ask this question, if my prayers for this child were the only ones ever prayed, would this child be well covered in prayer? Think of the little ones in your life and ask that question. Two, speak to them the truth of the, the good news of Jesus Christ about the truth of God's word versus the pernicious lies in the world. And again, ask a similar question. If my words about Jesus 
were the only words this little one ever heard, how well would they understand him? And finally, model Christ to them. As you've heard it said a million times, and I believe it true, you can talk till you're blue in the face. They're watching how you live, right? Think about the power of example. I think about a story I heard about President Calvin Coolidge. He invited his family from Vermont to the White House, and they came, and they were all nervous about the etiquette around the table and stuff. So they decided, we're just going to do whatever he does. And that was fine for most of the meal until after the main course, the saucers and coffee came out, and, and he poured his coffee into a little saucer, and the rest of them, okay. They did that, and then he grabbed the cream and poured it in there. Okay, they did that too, and then he grabbed the sugar and stirred it around a little bit, and then he sat it on the floor for his cat. <laughs> the power of example, right? They just followed, and, and the little ones do that too. Words aside, I want to ask us, words aside, if all the little ones in our lives had was what they saw in our lives, would they see Jesus? Would they see Jesus? As we wrap up, I want to review our three main points and then bring us home. Jesus tells us to humble ourselves like a little one. He warns us not to harm the little ones. And he tells us to hurry after them. I want to share a brief story about some little ones in a Kenyan orphanage about the heart of a child. This is written by Luke Hamilton. He said he spent some time at the Nayumbani Children's Orphanage alongside 150 HIV-positive Kenyan orphans. He said it was incredible. He said these children had something I hadn't seen in a while. They express so much joy as they worship God, so much gratitude and excitement to praise his name with their peers. They were full on, all out in love with the Lord. During the service, there was mention of a small child named Mary who sadly lost her life the previous week. Her friends and roommates were all in the front row. Rather than mourn in dismay at what had happened or become angry at the life they were born into with no fault of their own, they fully celebrated the life of Mary and the eternal one she now has with the Lord. He said the words, God is good all the time and all the time God is good were passionately shouted in praise by 150 small voices throughout the service. He closes with this. He said, after three hours with these children, I witnessed a fullness of faith, passionate adoration, all-out surrender, and nothing spared love for Jesus, no matter what the situation they're in. What if our own faith reflected that? I'll close with a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, Christ wants a child's heart but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable as good children are. But he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job 
and in first class fighting trim. How are we doing with that balance this morning? Father, I thank you for revealing your heart. Thank you for telling us we need to humble ourselves like the little ones and come to you in faith. I pray that you draw anyone at that crossroads this morning to the foot of the cross where you died for their sins. May they eat of that bread of life and, and drink of that water from which they drink and they will never thirst again. Lord, I thank you for your heart as protector of the little ones. I pray your grace and forgiveness for, for any ways that we've misled, either by acts or, or things we've left out, Lord. We all need your mercy. Not one of us is perfect. We come to you for your grace, and we pray for the strength to join you in your mission of protecting the little ones. And finally, finally, Lord, think of your heart as a shepherd, a pursuer. And I pray you'd give us that same heart. Thanks for pursuing us. We could take to show them your love, to show them your truth. And thank you that as we go, it's not us alone. It's, it's your power at work within us to pursue them. Whether it's going to those schools with a good news club or, or changing the way I operate at home or, or the way I operate at church with, with those who haven't been in the walk as long as I have, lead us to share your shepherd's heart and help us never lose the childlike wonder of what it means to walk with King Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. amen.